Welcome to the 56th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is the 10 most valuable insights from breakaway advisors, a collection of the top words of wisdom from those who shared their journeys to independence during year two of this series. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. When we started this series back in November of 2017, our intent was to produce just a handful of episodes designed to answer the questions that advisors were asking us about independence. And here we are, over two years and 65,000 downloads later, sharing our 56th episode. It's been an extraordinary ride, a strong desire by advisors who want to learn more about the space, fueled by what we see as the convergence of three distinct phenomena in the industry. First, changing advisor sentiment, in which advisors are placing less value on recruiting deals and short-term upside, and instead focusing on the bigger picture gaining greater freedom, flexibility, and control, and the potential to build long-term enterprise value. Secondly, it's the reshaping of client expectations, whereby clients have become far more devoted to the individual advisors who serve them, eschewing the dated belief that their needs were best served by big-name firms. Instead, as the term fiduciary has become more universal Clients are demanding that advisors put their best interests first and act as objective stewards, unencumbered by the limiting agenda of the brokerage firms. And lastly, powerful retention efforts at brokerage firms to further tie advisors to their firms have actually served to do the opposite in many cases. That is, emboldening senior advisors and their next-gen partners to explore options outside the wirehouses, which could offer alternative ways to solve for succession, as well as the ability to better serve clients and grow their businesses. It's a perfect storm of sorts that's driving change and translating into levels of advisor movement we've not seen since the financial crisis over a decade ago. It's a topic I wrote about in my annual review of the landscape, which you can find on our website. Taking it a step further, in listening to the different episodes over the past year, particularly the stories shared by breakaway advisors, we found that each were impacted by this storm. That is, the confluence of these events ultimately influenced their decision to make a move. 
Thinking back to the original intent of this series, that is, to answer the most common questions about independence, we found that the commentary from those who made the leap is what resonated most with our listeners. While it's important to share information about the different models and latest developments in the independence space, it's in the conversations with breakaway advisors themselves that we learn firsthand about the real motivations, the pushes and pulls behind the choice to leave the wirehouse world. And even more importantly, the risks these folks took and the rewards they found waiting on the other side. Their stories are inspirational for sure and chock full of words of wisdom, painting a picture of a landscape that has been reshaped right before our very eyes. I'm inspired by our guests' courage and grateful for their sincerity and willingness to share transparently with me, so much so that I thought it important to reshare the top 10 insights from our most popular breakaway episodes. So let's start at the top. At just 34 years old, Michael Henley was already a top-rated Forbes advisor and the leader of his eight-person team at Merrill Lynch in Wilmington, Delaware a team that managed nearly a billion in assets for high net worth clients and with one advisor just 10 years shy of retirement. A self-proclaimed student of the business and diehard Merrill advisor, Michael started to notice the changes at the firm and spent years researching the independent space, following industry thought leaders like Michael Kitsis, also a guest on my show in 2019, and even listening to this podcast series to gain a better understanding of the differences in working for a big brokerage firm versus starting an RIA. So in episode 33, I asked Michael to share some background on the motivations behind his team's move and how they resolved the challenges of making the leap with a multi-generational team. At Merrill Lynch, you ran the team of Henley, McConey, McGuire, Jackson, and Associates. And I know that one of your partners was less than 10 years from retirement at the time we started talking. Can you talk with us a bit about the things that were most important to him and how they impacted your thinking? Uh, certainly. That was actually one of the biggest drivers is that Steve being, let's just say, less than 10 years from retirement, exactly as you stated, we looked, we evaluated the Merrill Lynch CTP program, and it was essentially a four-year program um, that, that paid him out his ordinary income over a four-year payout based on his trailing 12 production. And the challenge that we had, Steve specifically had with that model, was the fact that he has no desire to exit the business entirely, I would say really at any point in the future. I mean, he likes the idea of staying involved in some capacity like most advisors do. This business is his baby. It's his whole world. So he liked the idea of a longer transition plan. So instead of being four years, perhaps 10 years, and being able to stay on in some capacity where it makes sense. With the CTP program, you know, essentially after the four-year period is over, he loses his production number or his advisor number, and we would have effectively had to hire him under the team as a client associate or as a CA. He would have had to come back on the team almost in a support capacity, which doesn't really bode well for a 40-year, you know, multi-million dollar producer at Merrill, where we were able to structure the kind of his transition plan or his retirement, if you will, in the form of a sale of equity to the business. We can do it over a 10-year you know, installment sale. So it's almost a pension for 10 years versus four. And from a tax treatment standpoint, he's able to claim that income as long-term capital gains 
rather than ordinary income. So more flexibility, better after-tax consequences, and ultimately he'll stay on as the chairman regardless of whether his equity is sold back to the firm or not. So it's that certainly makes sense from an economic perspective, but how about the emotional perspective of a 30-some-odd-year veteran leaving Merrill, the notion of going independent, the notion of the hassle factor of making a move? How did all of that land on him? That is a great question. So I would say that I'll never forget, we had an owner's meeting um, at Steve's house, actually, where all five owners got together. And we were, you know, all kind of on board. So Mark, you know, Allison and myself, were all kind of completely on board with this is better for our clients. It's going to be some upfront heavy lifting. We recognize that. But long term, we think the, the, the work is absolutely worth the outcome. And we positioned it as, hey, you know, we think we can go ahead and, and make this transition. It's more flexible for you. Yes, we're going to be walking away from some significant unvested deferred compensation. You know, we kind of talked through that aspect and we'll come back to that. But we think it's it's the best outcome for our clients. And we actually so I said, Steve, specifically, you have always done a phenomenal job of putting your client's interest first. You've prided yourself on this since I've worked with you for as long as I've known you. If we can give our clients better outcomes, better advice, uh, more comprehensive planning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and basically, you know, it's some work on the front end for us, but we know with certainty we can do better for our clients. How can we at, know that and still continue to stay at Merrill Lynch? We feel it incumbent upon ourselves to make this transition on behalf of our clients, if nothing else. So his response was actually, you know what, if you, you know, I agree with that and let's, let's do it. And he actually was incredibly supportive relative to the fact that he's 37 years at Merrill Lynch. Yeah, that's actually awesome. And bravo to Steve, because we work with many multi-generational teams. And while conceptually, the notion of independence or gaining more freedom and control is appealing to everyone, it's often very hard for a lifer advisor at a firm, someone like Steve, 30-something years in the business, whether it be four years or 10 years from retirement, to A, wrap his head around walking away from significant deferred comp, and B, really believing that in fact there could be a better way to serve clients. So I guess my question is, how did you convince him of that? What do you think was the most compelling thing you were able to show him or say to him that proved to him or got him comfortable with the fact that clients could in fact be better served as an independent? I would say that from the from the actual client outcome perspective, the sophisticated planning tools that we now have far surpass the proprietary tools at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. So that aspect, Steve trusts our judgment as it relates to technology capacity and technology tools and resources. As it relates to one of the, the personal decision, I would say this, the entire team collectively over the past, let's just call it three years, there was a significant deterioration of the culture at Merrill Lynch not only in the local office that we were in, but I would be spending hours and hours and hours navigating, you know, Merrill Lynch's latest compensation plan, trying to identify how do we do what's right for our clients, but still, you know, earn the maximum amount of compensation. Um, and just the time that I would spend on this and kind of jumping through hoops, you know, householding clients, you know, de-householding clients, it, 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 kind of the target never stops moving at Merrill Lynch. And while it's a great firm, I just felt that I was spending too much time on the compensation plan and Merrill's kind of growth, you know, new growth grid program focused on bringing in a large number of families and they would treat a $300,000 new client the same as a $3 million new client. And we just felt that they were going more kind of quantity over quality when in our practice, our philosophy is very simple that we look to add three to five new families per year and we want to make sure they're the right families. You know, we're not going to add 15 to 20 new clients every single year, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar rollovers here and there. 
that just isn't a business that we have built. So the compensation plan aspect, Steve just said, hey, jumping through hoops is craziness. Merrill's changed so much over the years. The culture is gone. On top of that, one last point that I'll make is that when we asked our team collectively, are you all still happy at Merrill Lynch? The answer was not no. I mean, plain and simple. When Steve realized that all seven of the other partners no longer enjoy it the way we used to, it just changed so much over the years with the, a lot of things you've talked about. He said, okay, if no one's happy and clearly, you know, I'm somewhat not involved in day-to-day operations, we have to do what's right for our clients and we have to keep our team happy. So for Michael and his team, the notion of focusing on quantity over quality ran counter to how his team ran their business. Yet with all of the options out there, and when considering Michael as a young advisor with a long runway ahead, it begs the question, why make the leap now? The truth is, we're seeing this new generation of younger advisors, those in their 30s and 40s, getting educated about their options far sooner than the generation before them. They're eschewing the short-term windfall of a transition deal and taking a longer-term view of building enterprise value over the next 20 to 30 years, rather than just focusing on the 5 to 10-year time horizon of their predecessors. Essentially, they're betting it all on their own ability to find the way to best serve their clients and grow their businesses. But let's hear Michael's perspective would love to ask you, why did you feel you were ready for independence now? What gave you the confidence to do it instead of waiting another decade or so? That is a a great question. I kept asking myself one question. Number one, what am I waiting for? So that was probably the most important question. If not now, then when? There's always going to be a reason to defer. What if we have kids? I just got married. You know, what if one of our partners has a child? There's so many aspects that you can kind of come up. I don't want to say excuses, but you can come up with a million reasons why. It's easy to come up with reasons why not to move. And I would say the question you have to ask yourself effectively is 10 years from now, will I regret not making this move or will I regret not even, you know, essentially staying at Merrill Lynch? When I look forward 10 years, I would say if I'm still at Merrill Lynch in 10 years and I'm more and more limited by this comp plan, by the infrastructure, by the situation, I would have a lot of regrets. I would have regrets to not even consider exploring the opportunities. So as a bare minimum, my advice to, to Merrill Lynch advisors or any wirehouse advisor would be at least have the conversation with colleagues of yours who have done this and at least ask them why have they done it? What is better? What is worse? What are the pros and cons? A common thread we're seeing in many of the breakaways we speak with is that they're driven by a strong desire to serve their clients and grow their business with greater freedom, flexibility, and control. For Morgan Stanley breakaway Margaret Deccant, now a founding partner of $2.5 billion Kansas-based independent firm Six Meridian, it was a desire so strong that she and her team were willing to leave deferred compensation behind to make it a reality. The Six Meridian story exemplifies the effects of the perfect storm we're experiencing, where a changing advisor mindset, evolving client needs, and ever-tightening of the ties that bind at the brokerage firms are driving movement. Margaret demonstrates the phenomenon in episode 42. You and the team broke away from Morgan Stanley in 2016, at a time when going independent wasn't quite as mainstream as it is today. And I'll ask you a couple questions about that, but you mentioned just now about how your clients really look for you to be the total financial advisor, to really run or own the entire financial relationship. And so I guess the first question is, were you able to do that 
in the confines of Morgan Stanley? We were not able to achieve that at Morgan Stanley to the level we are able to do it today. We've expanded our team. We've expanded our technology. We've brought additional investment solutions to the table that we could not have provided at Morgan Stanley. So yes, in answer to your question, the vision for our business was above and beyond what we were able to do within the walls of Morgan Stanley. I'm curious about what other pushes there were. What other things sort of pushed you to decide to leave Morgan Stanley and go independent? Well, we had been operating fairly independently as a team inside of Morgan Stanley. We had, as I mentioned, built out our own investment platform. We had identified our target markets and had a marketing strategy, a branding strategy all around those target markets. We had hosted our own events. We had hired our own staff. We had invested in a business just like we owned it. And at some point, when you're looking at the economics of that, you're giving, you know, in just general numbers, you're still giving Morgan Stanley 60% of every dollar that clients pay you to provide you with, at that point, you could really say was a place to sit and technology. We were fairly independent from their investment solutions. Again, we had a lot of our own in-house management. So we just weren't tapping into a lot of the resources that they tout as a benefit of being part of Morgan Stanley. Not that those aren't good benefits, but they just didn't apply to us and our clientele. So when we started looking at the economics, we were just thinking if we were able to take those resources and apply them to our clients, and not the priorities of a Wall Street firm, if we could just focus on what our clients wanted and our clients needed, could we do a better job for them? And the answer continually was yes, we believe that we could. The priorities of Morgan Stanley no longer really aligned with the priorities of our clients. So it was partly economic, but also then we looked at the ability to expand upon and invest in things that really mattered to our clients, to take those resources of human capital and financial capital and really invest them in the vision that we had for our business. The other part of it, Mindy, if you remember back in 2016, the fiduciary standard was top of the list for everyone. And shortly before we left Morgan Stanley, we had a very painful meeting, a required meeting that was talking about how we had to look at not charging commissions or charging commissions, you know, just these down to the fine points of things that really had to be done for legal purposes, but not necessarily were going to be in the best interest of the client. What we wanted to do was to be able to tell our clients, we are a true fiduciary for you. We are completely agnostic when it comes to what we offer to you. We are bringing you the best solutions that we have available to help your you solve the financial concerns that you have. And so I want to come back to how the clients responded, but I guess my question is, so it sounds like you were 
pretty committed or pretty convinced that the only way to do that was to be independent. So curious if you looked at any other options, any other employee-based options at the time you were thinking about leaving. And do you consider yourself a natural entrepreneur? In other words, was part of the pull toward independence because there was entrepreneurial DNA that wasn't being satisfied? Or was it more really just about a belief to just strong desire to do better for clients? You know, it was, I'd say it was a combination to go back to, did we look at other options? You know, like all advisors and particularly big teams, we fielded calls from headhunters all the time. You know, this is what will pay you to jump ship to UBS or Merrill or whatever the case might have been. And we knew that that was not what we wanted to do. We wanted to be able to fulfill the vision that we had for our business, which we kept coming back to. We really want to be able to invest our resources in our people, in our technology, and back into our community and be able to really deliver the best of class to for our on behalf of our clients. So although we were being courted by other wirehouses, as a lot of advisors are, we did look at some of the options that are more employee-based, but and we actually did consider one of those options, but again, knew that ultimately we really wanted to own our own business. We really wanted to be able to invest the time, the money, the energy into building something that we could be proud of and call our own. Margaret had shared that the ability to serve clients was at the forefront of their decision to build their own firm. But many advisors wonder if they leave the big brokerage name and cachet behind, will their clients follow? So I asked Margaret that very question. So how did the clients respond to the notion of you leaving a big brand name firm and launching Six Meridian? Well, the response was overwhelmingly positive, which was terrific. You know, a lot of our clients have been with us a long time, so we appreciate and value their loyalty. But you never know to know. You never know until you make that call that they're going to be on board with you. There were two big surprises, I guess, that came out of that. One, our clients were very happy for us. The overwhelming first response was not, what does this mean for me? It was, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy that you all have decided to do this. And some of that is the, you know, the relationships we have with our clients, but some of it's also, many of them are also entrepreneurs as well. So they speak the language and they understand the magnitude of what we had done. Secondly, there was a clear line of loyalty to us and very little to Morgan Stanley. And that's not a negative on Morgan Stanley. I think that's just how advisor and client relationships are wired. You know, if people have been with you 10, 15 years, uh, they are going to trust that you've made good decisions, that you're doing this on behalf of your team and your clients, and that you're building a business that's going to benefit everyone. So the response was just overwhelmingly positive. For another former Morgan Stanley team, culture was a key driver. Having started their business under the Smith Barney brand, Steve Schwartzbach and his partners watched things change under Morgan's management. Steve and his partner first started exploring independence in early 2009, but like many at the time, didn't feel that the space had quite matured enough. 
Fast forward less than a decade later, an Icon Wealth Partners was born. And as Steve shared in our episode 43, he now has the ability to shop the street for best-in-class access to everything his clients would need, unencumbered by limitations of the brokerage firm they once worked for. I asked him what pushes and pulls motivated them to make the leap, and here's what he had to say. Quite frankly, we, we felt like we were being told no more often than yes. And, you know, we understand that it's a big company, that there was a need to manage to the lowest common denominator to protect the firm and the franchise. But that was frustrating to you know, two partners who are both, you know, solid business folks, wanted to serve our clients, uh, but were consistently hit with some barriers or impediments that prevented us from doing so. And we didn't think we were doing anything unusual. We just saw a little erosion of the kinds of conversations we could have with the clients, the kinds of products that we were making available to them. Uh, There was a little bit of the move towards a proprietary product within the Morgan Stanley franchise that we were a little uncomfortable with. Um, So we just started to see over time this erosion of what we thought was our commitment to open architecture and the way that we had, we'd always served our clients. Yeah. You know, I read an interesting quote this morning by a breakaway group that left Merrill Lynch last year, managing about $5 billion in assets. And they were quoted as saying that they had no idea what the business was capable of until they went independent. So what have been some of the things that you've been able to do or things you've seen as an independent that you couldn't do or uh, weren't capable of doing at Morgan Stanley? You know, the thing that we've learned as an independent business is, and this sounds a little counterintuitive, that the choices are now truly unlimited. In fact, it's one of the challenges that I think of the independent model of the independent space is you've got to manage the choices because they, they really are abundant. What we have found that our clients really appreciate is that, that we are free to look for products and services outside of the universe that we used to operating in, we used to operate in. And I think a good example of that is securities-based lending. A lot of our clients were using the rate arbitrage and the leverage of their personal assets to do things like private real estate investing or to buy mineral interests in oil wells uh, in the Eagleford Shale. And so our clients adopted the securities-based lending product and, and capability. When we went independent, we had more choices of where we could source that product. So at Morgan Stanley, it was, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? We used their product, which was a good and solid product. But in the independent model, you know, Fidelity offers the product to us. Goldman Sachs offers the product to us. And we're working with a smaller, nichier focused group. And what we can do is we can play them off of each other. We can have them compete for our business, which our clients appreciate that they know that that we're fighting for them, if you will. Full open architecture and access to a wide universe of products and services is particularly important to those advisors and teams who serve a niche client base. For example, when Bank of America shut down offshore branches and asked her to close accounts in certain jurisdictions, Lisa Van Wellingham knew it was time to make a change. So she and her partners built the independent firm Maximi Investment Partners based in Coral Gables, Florida. In episode 35, I asked her about their transition to independence. 
So can you talk with us a little bit about your thinking behind the move? Sure. We became so unhappy and frustrated after the Bank of America takeover. I mean, we worked so hard to keep the clients unaware of all the changes the bank was forcing on us and on our business, things that were not in the best interest of our clients. Uh, They were basically shutting down the offshore business by closing or selling out our international business. You know, it was like a slow death. There was a huge disconnect between the financial advisors and management. And it's true, the move to independence is not as common for international advisors. The main reason advisors are reluctant to leave, to make the decision to leave, is really that they've become way too comfortable in the way things are. They've lost their passion and they are so drinking the Kool-Aid. When we decided to investigate the options seriously, we realized two important things. Number one is we already had seen a move by Latin American clients, particularly the upper echelon, ultra high net worth clients. They were already forming their own wealth-focused family offices or hiring personal advisors to represent them in their best interest. And number two, we realized that independence in the offshore world was still considered rare for the average client. So the majority of the Latin fortunes today, the, the Latin American fortunes today, are still in the hands of bankers and brokers. But that balance is changing rapidly, right? So when we realized that we were in a very early stage of this transformation, giving us an incredible opportunity to go after these client families. So for those individuals or those advisors who are still sitting in an office in the U.S. serving offshore clients, they're more and more competing with independent advisors like us. You know, we are the advisors that dare to leave and we're becoming the preferred advisor for these clients. In each of these interviews, one of the questions I ask breakaways is if they consider themselves serial entrepreneurs. And Lisa's response is much like many others who make the leap to independence. They never really think of themselves as entrepreneurial. But let's listen to how Lisa thinks about it. So, Lisa, do you consider yourself a serial entrepreneur? And what I mean by that is someone who always knew that you wanted to be a business owner, or was it something that just sort of came to you over time as you became more frustrated uh, with Merrill? Truthfully, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Yet now I can look back and, and I can say, yeah, I had many of the ingredients of an entrepreneur early in my career. The truth is that I loved my time at Merrill. It was such a great school of experience, you know, and Merrill once used to welcome this international ultra high net worth client and they allowed us and helped us build a great environment to meet their needs and and us to grow in our business. But after the financial crisis, this Bank of America took over. uh, The truth is that Merrill died that day. And so Bank of America was just never comfortable with the international wealth management business at all. They didn't understand it and they wanted no part of it. So one of the most impactful changes for me when Bank of America took over was the loss of my voice as a financial advisor. You know, Bank of America had this top-down approach that was a very tough pill to swallow. The inability for me to advocate for my clients and for our business, that loss of control affected me deeply. And I think that really was the turning point where this entrepreneurial spirit of mine that was always in there came out. I had to do something to be able to control my future 
to be able to control and, and, and advocate for my clients. So I have to say that it was always deep down inside. It was always there. And it came out as a result of, like you said, these, the frustration that we had, all of us had, that only got worse and worse over time. While many think that it's the desire to become a business owner that motivates advisors to make the leap, for some, it's an uncompromising drive to do what's best for clients and to grow a business that's sustainable with long-term value. But for Merrill Breakaway, Paul Pagnato, a Forbes top advisor and CEO and founder of Pagnato Carp, it was something even more. In episode 54, Paul shared what independence really meant to him and his partner and why they could only achieve their goals as a fully independent firm. When you left Merrill to go to Hightower, just to backstep a second, did you know that you wanted something more entrepreneurial? Were you looking to get closer to being an entrepreneur, a business owner at that time? Or were you also exploring traditional models like maybe Morgan Stanley or UBS or Raymond James or something like that? Super question. So we explored the entire landscape. At the, at the end of the day, I'm a scientist and I do tons of experiments and tons of due diligence. So me, we met with all the large banks, all the large brokerage firms, as well as the independent space. It was very clear that to provide complete transparency to our clients, to be able to be a true fiduciary and to unleash more value, we had to go on the independent space. Coupled with the passion of unleashing our unique abilities and being an entrepreneur, it was a no-brainer for us to go on the independent space. But we did a thorough assessment on both sides. So let me just focus on that for a second, because I think a lot of advisors in your shoes, first of all, not everyone has as much entrepreneurial genetic DNA as you might. But there were plenty of people that sort of are at that threshold, feeling the pain and limitations of being an employee at a major firm, wanting more freedom, flexibility, control, some of the things that independence or quasi-independence offers, but finding it really hard to emotionally and financially give up the safety and security of a large transition deal up front transition economics up front, and the safety and security and scaffolding of being an employee of a big brand name firm. So how did you reconcile that? It's passion. It's belief and wanting to make an impact. I believe to put purpose over profits, you need to be that way. So whether it's you're, you're at that point in time of your life, or it's just part of who you are. And, and it's awesome to be profits-based as well. We live in a capitalist system and society here, and it rewards those that, that are. I fully respect that. But the reality is to be a true fiduciary, to forego many, many revenue sources that exist on the bank and broker-dealer side, you take a pay cut. So my partner and I, we took a 50% pay cut when we made that transition to being a pure true fiduciary. So it, you know, it took time to get back to where we were when we left off. So I believe for an individual to do that and to take a pay cut, I mean, we were an extreme going complete true fiduciary, cold turkey, but even to take a 25% pay cut is very, very substantial and it has to be purpose-based. Yes, purpose-based, but confident, but a certain amount of risk tolerance 
a sort of visionary kind of mentality, the ability to sort of see what's possible, trusting, right? I mean, all of those things have to be true as well, and a certain amount entrepreneurial as well. Totally. In addition to uh, wanting to, to make a difference in the impact, you do have to be good with yourself. You do have to have confidence that it's going to work out. You have to have faith. It's not linear. We're linear creatures as opposed to exponential creatures. So it, it's not a linear line from point A to point B. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, it breeds fear. But you have to have confidence. Purpose has to be there. And it's the journey as humans, we love to explore and we love to discover. And this is one of the best discoveries I've ever made. While we've spent much of this episode sharing the motivations of advisors who left the brokerage world behind to build independent practices, there's another constituency that is making the leap. And that's those from the leadership ranks of the brokerage firms. In episode 26 of our first season, we spoke with Jim Dixon, the former Merrill manager who left to build Sanctuary Wealth. This year, I had the honor of sitting down with three others who left management roles in the brokerage world to join the breakaway movement. First, Chris Dupuis, who after nearly three decades with Merrill Lynch, was one of the first senior leaders to leave the firm and join the independent movement by choice. His first leap was a management role with Focus Financial, the industry aggregator of top RIA firms, which he subsequently left in 2018 to take on a key role with Rockefeller Capital Management. In episode 37, I asked him why he left the comforts of Merrill to jump on board the independent train, and here's what he had to say. Well, it it was the hardest professional decision I had had to make in my career to that point because I had grown up at Merrill Lynch and and had always been proud to be a part of Merrill. But when the industry changed and and Merrill Lynch changed and Bank of America came on the scene, I really felt that the direction that Bank of America was intending to take Merrill Lynch was really not in the best interest of the advisors and the clients that I had grown up working with. So ultimately, it, it led me to do some due diligence into the industry, my position versus other things that I might do. And I was introduced to the head of Focus Financial Partners at that time, and we literally went back and forth for about a year talking about the state of the industry, where things were going, and ultimately, I made the decision to leave Merrill and and join Focus. Okay, and then you left Focus and joined Rockefeller. So what was that decision about? I felt that the combination of being able to work with a, a brand like the name Rockefeller, which right off the bat to me was very exciting coupled with the opportunity to work with some old colleagues from my Merrill Lynch days who I both respected and liked a great deal, that combination was very powerful to me. And as we had some discussions, uh, the role that uh, that Greg Fleming and Chris Randazzo created for me, I really felt was one I could make an impact positively on the industry. And so ultimately, uh, for me, it was the right decision and really thrilled as to how things have begun. But I asked him what makes firms like Rockefeller different. Put another way, why does he think an advisor should leave the familiarity and security of a big firm for a boutique firm like Rockefeller? There's such frustration. Typically, it starts with the whole story of compliance to the lowest common denominator, making it really difficult to get things done at the major firms. 
turnaround time on requests is lengthy at best, and typically the no isn't because it's something that can't be done. It's a no because there's just simply a concern that it's outside of the box of where they want to take their respective businesses, and there's really an effort on the part of the large firms to homogenize the advisor's practices into something that kind of is one-size-fits-all. And you have these teams that have spent decades creating reputations and personas that their clients identify with, and a lot of that is based on customization and entrepreneurial thinking, and that's where many of these advisors have the most fun day-to-day. And as that gets stripped away, it's just creating a tremendous amount of frustration. And so if you're a senior advisor and you're concerned because what you've always created in terms of client expectations is all of a sudden in jeopardy, you almost have no choice but to do your due diligence. And so that's where we come in because what we found is that if you're at a major firm and you start thinking in your mind what the conversation with your client would be like as to where you're going and why if you made a decision to leave the major firm, being able to introduce the concept of of Rockefeller Private Wealth as a brand, there's no necessary explanation as to who we are. And in terms of what we're creating, that entrepreneurial mindset and emphasis on client-centric solutions for the high net worth and the ultra-high net worth, it's a natural gravitation of one's practice. So we're hearing this, you know, really it's a, a thirst and a desire to restore some of the fun back into this business that 12 years ago when things started to change as an industry. And we feel that's part of our opportunity. And, and culturally, if you were to talk to Greg Fleming or Chris Randazzo or myself, one of the things we're most excited about is, is the ability to change this industry in a really positive way by creating the kind of a culture that we all used to be so proud of and it's just harder and harder to find today. So many we talk to have a level of nostalgia for a life that once existed in the wirehouse world prior to the financial crisis in 2008. And now leaders like Chris, who watched from the top of the food chain as the world changed around them, are on a path to recreate the best of what once was, delivering new options that offer a culture of entrepreneurialism with greater levels of freedom, flexibility, and control. It's a sentiment that Jim Gold shared in episode 36. Prior to founding Steward Partners, the quasi-independent model in partnership with Raymond James, he was an executive director at Morgan Stanley and an early adopter of wirehouse managers making the leap to the independent space. I asked him why he decided to leave the wirehouse world and create Steward. I think Steward really was a reaction. I always say every action causes a reaction. I think it was a reaction to the cultural shift inside of the traditional, what people refer to as the wirehouse firms. I think over time, the quality of life and the branch system had eroded dramatically. I think the issue of complexing really removed the management from the advisors. And I think the quality of life in that model has changed dramatically. And I don't think there's really anyone that would argue that. As a matter of fact, when I I sit with a recruit and we talk, and and the very common comment I get is, you know, my best days are behind me. And I think really that was sort of the uh, genesis of the interest in starting a, a firm, a new firm and looking into something that was different. What was it about independence that motivated you to take the leap of faith with four kids at home and leave behind the comfort of a traditional brokerage firm? We saw the change in the industry, and I think there was a window of opportunity. And, you know, there were many folks that were trying to dissuade me from from taking the leap. And I think what really resonated with me is 
this was an opportunity to try to do something really unique and special. And I felt that if we were unsuccessful in what we were trying to accomplish with Steward, for me personally, I felt like, look, if I try this and it fails, I could always go back to that other model that I came from. I'm not any less qualified to be a complex manager if I've had an unsuccessful stint as, as an independent firm. But I think for me, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. Uh, it's in my family's history. It's in my own blood. So I think for me, it was that chance to say, you know what, this is a window of, of opportunity in life. And I think you have to take advantage of it. And I'd rather not look back with regret and say, I should have tried that. And it was successful. Yet, it was ex-UBS leadership breakaway Rob Bartenstein, the CEO of Kestra Private Wealth Services, who shared in episode 38 that he felt it was no longer possible to be authentic in the wirehouses. What was it about independence that motivated you to take the leap of faith? And what changes had you seen in the wirehouse world that contributed to your move to independence? Well, that really is the, that's the beginning of everything, isn't it? I, I think that the initial attraction of independence was really just the purity of it. The notion of control and the absence of conflict or the certainly the reduction of conflict and just the purity of being able to express yourself and your brand in an authentic way. For me, it's really clear the wirehouses did change. I left production in 2008 after a stint as a producing manager and went into management full-time. And between 08 and 2010, I really felt like the wirehouses kind of lost their way. And so the idea of being, for lack of a better way of putting it, the puppet being asked to do things by the puppet masters, I think my partners and I decided that there had to be a better way and, and we wanted to pursue that. These leaders and others like them recognize firsthand that there's an opportunity to find a better way. That is, models that offer the best of what once was in the brokerage firms combined with an entrepreneurial culture and the freedom, flexibility, and control to serve their clients and grow their businesses as they see fit, and to do so without the heavy lifting that building your own firm requires. It's courageous visionaries like these who are at the very core of the evolution of the landscape and opening up the doors for growth in the independent space. That notion of finding a better way came up in my conversation with ex-UBS advisors and the founding partners of Requisite Capital, Bryn Talkington and Doug John. They described their own due diligence process when considering their move from UBS, the growth of options and models within the independent space, and why they ultimately chose to build their own RIA firm. Let's listen to what they had to say in episode 53. All right, let's flip the switch a second and talk then, what were the pulls to independence? How entrepreneurial were you guys? Do, were you the people that had always had a desire to be business owners? Or was this more of a situational thing as you looked at the landscape, you felt being independent was just the next right choice? I would say I've always had an entrepreneurial bent to just how I think and so forth. And I think the capacity to go execute on that kept diminishing. And so it wasn't that I necessarily 10 years thought about, hey, I just need to own my own company. I think we reacted to what we thought and where we see the industry going. They kind of pointed us to this direction. And 
it has certainly become easier to become to start an independent firm than maybe it was 10 years ago. So you know, we're very open-minded to what our options were. And as you started really going down this rabbit hole of the independent space, it just became really exciting to us. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I can just tell you how we're both wired. We like to know how the sausage is made. So it's been a really busy two years. We are such better advisors for it. I mean, there's so much more we know from a regulatory standpoint, various services we have our, offer our clients, investments, et cetera. So it was worth it. So I think, though, you have to have an entrepreneurial bent to go do this. And, you know, Mindy, we had talked about there's degrees of freedom when you come into the independent space. And I think maybe there are people who are slightly less entrepreneurial than others. Well, there's some places they can go, but you can still leave the big firms. <laughs> so I think that's the nice thing about the independent space is there's different channels you can go pursue depending on how much work you want to put into it. Bryn, did you want to add something? Well, I think that for advisors thinking about this space, to start with where Doug ended on the degrees of freedom, because there are so many versions of independence, but it's really important to remember the financial industry is such a highly regulated sector and for good reason. And so there's so many belts and suspenders as it becomes to how traditionally people think of what does it mean to be entrepreneurial. But I think we think about being entrepreneurial as being just like laser focused on building a platform that brings in top technology, really high quality custodians, you know, unique investments that are tailored toward our client base rather than our client base having to fit inside a pre-populated box that was built for the masses. And so I do think a big part of the growth of the independent space is people are saying there is a better way. And we think this is the better way. And that's why, you know, it was just a natural move for us, natural move, but for advisors in general, I think that degrees of freedom is so important to understand. I also asked them to weigh in on UBS's Retire in Place program, Alpha, and announcements around comp changes and the shift in the balance of power in the wirehouses, and they shared some really insightful observations. That balance of shift has already happened, and it's just going to continue to happen. So as Bryn pointed out earlier, UBS is a fiduciary to their shareholders first and foremost. So I think the move that they're making is a really good move from a shareholder point of view. I don't think it's a great move from an advisor point of view. I think what's just going to continue to happen in the industry is these firms are going to look for just creative ways that ultimately just push down what the ultimate compensation is to the advisor. That might work for a lot of advisors. It, it wouldn't work for me because you just said it, Mindy. I mean, these are the firm's clients. Fortunately, we left before UBS got out of the protocol. I mean, they're all, they're saying it. These are our clients. You know, you, the advisors are just serving our clients. And if you leave, it's clients who are going to maybe not go with you or you're going to have a really hard time because they're our clients. So it's a reality. And advisors need to have their eyes wide open as to what that is. Yeah, I do think it's also, I, I do think it's to really hit on that, this is a good business decision for the firms, right? And so that's where you have this aging demographic of advisors. And, you know, when Doug and I started in this business, it was very different. It's hard to start in this business as a young person and just to get started, build a book of business because the business has changed. People don't cold call anymore. And so I think it's, once again, this is a transition that's good for the balance sheet. And I think as a firm, you're going to continue to see this. 
but ultimately, you know, this is the path for younger advisors to a salary bonus versus the traditional compensation that has been around for decades. So as we wind down the last of the top 10 insights, I wanted to share the conversation I had in episode 49 with Rob Nelson, the CEO and founding partner of independent firm North Rock Partners. In 2013, he made the decision to spin off from broker-dealer Ameriprise and hasn't looked back, experiencing 3x growth since has taken on a capital partner and made headlines with a high-profile hire and acquisition. When I asked him about the transition to full-on independence, he really summed up what many advisors who are considering the leap have on their minds. Now in in the independence space, I can dream. I can think about not only what's going to bring joy and how I can improve my clients' lives. That's ultimately for us why I feel this industry and this business is fulfilling for us is we can play a strong role in helping to improve our clients' lives, not just because of financial, it's, it's in all other elements. And that's what brings us joy. That's what makes us, gives us the gratitude to come into this every day is knowing that whatever my next client need is, traditional financial services or above and beyond, if it makes sense for us and it makes sense for our clients that we're going to deliver upon that. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, as a final point, because the truth is this is incredibly fascinating and I could talk for hours because your story is really intriguing. But I think what you're describing is the conundrum that most advisors have, whether they're an employee or they're not independent enough for their liking. They have to choose between the comfort and familiarity of the status quo. You say, I was making a nice living. I had status within the firm. I knew how to get things done. It was working for me. But I was weighing that comfort and familiarity against the pull of not being able to deliver for clients what you wanted to or what you felt that they deserved or needed. And I guess ultimately that drive to do better for clients really won out over the comfort and familiarity. And it did require a risk. It did take a risk. And for me, I guess I I kept on coming back to is, is the current environment I'm in right now, is it the right environment for me to reach my potential and my client's potential? But you know, let's just be selfish, my potential. Can I meet my potential within this organization? And then how does the current firm fit into reaching that potential on behalf of my clients and that responsibility that I have? And I just, for me, I felt like I, I needed to make a change that was better for the future. I mean, you only have one shot at this life and sometimes you have to take a chance. And for me, it was one of those rare decisions where the grass is greener on the other side. You know, we've been taught that, uh, that that's not the case, but just for us, the ability to just every day, I always tell my team, if you don't like the way a statement looks, well, that's your fault because we built that statement. If we don't like the technology provider, then let's go find a different technology provider. If there's a new investment solution that's available, the ability for us to go and change that. It, it, basically, we have total control of what a day in the life looks like and actually the experience that we're delivering to our clients. And for us, that's incredibly empowering as we think about our future. In wrapping up the top 10 breakaway insights from 2019, there was one guest who isn't a breakaway, but is an independent advisor and one of the top thought leaders in wealth management today. I asked Josh Brown, prolific blogger and CEO of independent firm Ritholtz Wealth Management, to share advice for wirehouse advisors who are thinking about going independent. 
And as always, Josh gives us his honest, pull-no-punches style response. There are people that have had a ton of success within the wirehouse system, and if they're comfortable and they like it and they're happy, they should keep doing that. Now, that's not everyone. And there are a lot of men and women who are at large wirehouse firms, and they do feel confined by the fact that the firm's got official mouthpieces and they don't want freelancing financial advisors running around with views that might differ from the house view. I totally get that. For those people that feel that they are being stunted professionally because of those confines, then they should consider independence. But you can hang a shingle and you can move to Dynasty platform or you could move to, you know, from a, a Raymond James captive to a Raymond James RIA on, on their pl- – like you can do all these different things and it's amazing that there are so many options now. But that doesn't mean all of a sudden the phones are going to light up and you're going to have 100 new clients, you know, knocking down your door. So the thought that I would plant in those people's heads that you're referring to, like should I go independent, ask yourself where your next 100 clients are going to come from. Whether you're at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or you pick a mountain range or a river near your house and, and name your firm Blue Mountain Capital or White River Investment Partner, you know, before you do that and think it's automatically going to be this huge growth spurt for you, you should really have a bigger plan in mind for how you're going to turn that into a bigger firm. Because I don't really think there's going to be room for $50 million RIAs in the near future. Not everyone doesn't have to be billions, but I don't think that these smaller practices with one person or two people, like the clients are going to want succession, peace of mind. They're going to want to know what happens to them if something happens to you. I think the cost of, of regulatory compliance goes up, the cost of healthcare and fintech and software, like all of these things are only going in one direction. So to be a $50 million firm three years from now, I'm not saying it'll be impossible. I'm saying it's not going to be glamorous. So you should really have a sense of if you do go out on your own, are you going to be a part of something bigger? Are you going to do your own thing? And if you are, how are you going to get it bigger? Because I think bigger is going to be very important. Yeah. And by bigger, I think we would all agree what we mean is not bigger for the sake of bigger sake, but bigger scale. for the sake of scale. Sc- you exactly. have to have scale. was an exciting year. I'm incredibly humbled by the growth of this show and grateful for you for tuning in and sharing the show with your colleagues. And I'd like to say a special thank you again to our guests who generously gave of their time and expertise. If you haven't listened in to the full episodes of each of these shows and others from the season, I encourage you to do so, as these clips represent only a portion of the incredible knowledge our guests shared. You'll find links to each on the show's page on our website. I hope you listen in to our next episode when Joe Duran, founder and CEO of United Capital, a Goldman Sachs company, joins me to talk about the evolution of United Capital share some inside baseball behind the Goldman acquisition and what we can expect in the next chapter of the firm. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. 
feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.